Hey, take a seat. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I think we can honestly say we're in the holiday season. You're recovering, I'm sure, from, you know, massive consumption. And, uh, yeah, I think we can really, not technically, but honestly say we're in winter. Yeah. Uh, hey, Ken, good to see you, brother. Good to have you back a little bit. Uh, yeah, last night, Christy and I walked in the parade downtown, and yeah, it was chilly. It was chilly, and I could not sleep this morning, so I got up at 0 dark 30, and, and uh, you know, we live in an old house, and we have real shutters that you can shut, you know, and they're held back by a little hook, and they were rattling, you know, like that, the whole house was going, and man, it was something. I had to, my office is outside the house, I got to go up the stairs, and it was chilly. Um... It's been a couple of months since, uh, you know, I only teach once a month, uh, since I was in the series that you may know, and it's the goal in 1 John that each of us may be assured of our salvation. Uh, And we've discussed several ways that we can have assurance. Keeping His commandments, that doesn't earn it, it's just evidence that you are saved. Uh, not loving the world system, not following false teachers or antichrist. But a recurring theme that we see in 1 John is that of loving one another. And that's where we're going to return today. So uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles, I think in the Pew Bible it's about 1122. And I'm going to read there the passage uh, that we're going to consider today before we get started. Starting in verse, in uh, 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Lord God. Lord, we pray that you would be with us today and help us to understand what this means and what kind of love this is. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, um, when, when I started preparing for this, given the, the season and the passage that I just read, you know, honestly, it kind of seemed like kind of a layup, a softball, you know, the sports analogies. An easy passage. You know, talking about love is pretty easy. However, when I got finished with the commentaries I was looking at and all the sources, you know, the, I was short. And you might be saying, Kent, that was a message from God. But I decided to look a little further especially at what John and Jesus say about love. And I found some startling things. 
which raised some very difficult questions that we're going to get to. And it's all around this issue of, yes, love, but what kind is John talking about? What kind does Jesus talk about? Well, let's start on a little lighter note. If you're old enough to remember black and white TV, you probably remember this guy. His name is Art Linkletter. And he had a show called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And he would bring up a panel of four or five oh, precocious four to maybe eight-year-olds. And he'd ask them questions. And some of the things they'd say would be really cute. Some would be almost embarrassing. And uh, I collected a few of those that had to do with love. So uh, I'm sure this is a young man. He said, love is like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. <laughs> and I'm sure this is a girl who said, love is when you tell a boy that you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. <laughs> young man must have said, you should never kiss a girl unless you have enough bucks to buy her a ring and a VCR because she will want videos of the wedding. <laughs> Here's a good one. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. Now that's love. Oh, yeah. All these perspectives from little ones are cute, funny, and sometimes insightful. But what's even more important is what does God think about love? Of course, uh, Paul gives us the attributes of love in 1 Corinthians 13, and we get a poetic and graphic description of love between a husband and wife in the Song of Songs. John tells us about brotherly love in walk, is walking in the light in 1 John 2, and then again about uh, to love in deed and truth by keeping God's commandments in 1 John 3. So the main point we're going to cover today is that God is love. He demonstrated that love by sending his son, and that his love is completed or perfected in us as we love one another. But it begs the question, what kind of love are we talking about? So John returns to this subject here to instruct us on the origin of love. And in uh, the, the high school class that Christy and I facilitate about apologetics, basically, we were talking about the difference that a materialistic worldview, one that says there's just matter and energy, what that, what that means for someone who's considering the reliability or the veracity of the Bible. And it occurred to me that a good question for a materialist might be, well, if matter and energy is all there is, uh, do you believe there's such a thing as love? And probably nobody except a pre-apparition Ebenezer Scrooge would deny it, right? I mean, that's, a, that, that's easy. And then a follow-up would be, well, if you do believe in love, from where does it come? This leads us straight into our passage. And we're going to start here in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is of God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And between this point and I think verse 3 in chapter 5, the word love appears more than 30 times. And that gives us an idea, a hint as to the importance of the issue. Uh, in looking at the overall writings of the apostles, some have said that James focuses on good works, uh, Paul on faith, Peter on hope. But John is the apostle of love. But you know there's a problem in talking about love. You know what it is. It's huge. There's so many concepts of love. Uh, and in our culture, unfortunately, to, today, love is most associated with sex. But when John was discussing this topic, he wasn't using the, word, the Greek word eros, from which we get erotic. Uh, rather, he was using agape, love. And this is a higher form of love. And he makes clear that the origin of agape love is God. We need to also remember that Christians are not in exclusive possession of love. As everyone is made in the image of God, all have the capability to love. However, as Scottish theologian I. Howard Marshall puts it, human love, however noble, however highly motivated, falls short if it refuses to include the Father and the Son as the supreme objects of its affection. And you all know that Jesus gave the first and most important commandment is to love the Lord your, your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So John says here to his spiritual children, let us love one another. Doesn't that sound like a nice invitation? Well, actually, that's a command that came from the mouth of our Savior in John 13. And he provides, John provides a couple of reasons why we should love one another. First, because it evidences our rebirth. Love is from God, and therefore, whoever has that kind of love gives evidence that they have been born again, born from above, born of God. Uh, Pastor John Piper says that love is from God in, in much the same way that heat is from fire and light is from the sun. Love is part of his essence. Therefore, it's salvation or rebirth. When we become one of his children, that spiritual DNA of love is passed on to each saved person. It is part of who you and I are as Christ followers. Piper says, quote, notice the phrase, his love, in verse 12. The love that you have as a born-again person is no mere imitation of the divine love. It is an experience of the divine love and an extension of that love to others. But this is evidence of more. As we demonstrate love to others, we also demonstrate that we know God. In fact, we know him intimately as our Father. 1 John 3 says that, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And the presence of this kind of love gives assurance of salvation. Verse 7 states that in the positive, 8 in the negative. The Father's love is sacrificial. It puts others before ourselves. And so consistent failure to demonstrate the Father's love evidences 
that really one does not know the Father, does not possess his nature, and by logical extension, is not one of his children, is not born of God. To be clear here, though, we need to avoid some logical fallacies. Uh, the fact that God is love does not mean that all love is of God any more than the fact that the sky is blue does not mean that all blue is sky. Love isn't the sum and substance of God, and love does not define God, but rather God defines love and gives it true meaning. Nor does it mean that God is only love. And there'll be more on that later. Now John's logic goes like this. It starts with the fact that love is from God. Those who are born again are his children and have his DNA or nature. Therefore, John concludes, all children of his will love, imperfectly, surely, but nonetheless, in the same way he loves. And we're trying to figure out today what that really means. So let's move on to verses 9 and 10 here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are asking the question, does anybody really love me? Now, whether due to loneliness, neglect, mistreatment, mental illness, betrayal, marital disharmony, misunderstandings, or real hatred, some people can feel unloved. Yet these, are the, these same people can know that God loves them beyond their own comprehension. How might they know this? Well, when John says that God is love is manifest, it revealed or put on display among us or for us, he's saying that we can see and know of that love from something that is very, very special, something very, very significant, and that is the cross. Yes, the Father sent the Son into the world. Why? We know that he sent him to pay the price for our sins, to give us an eternity with the Father after death, but before death, that we might live through him. What does it mean to live through him? Well, this is a non-exhaustive list. But take a look at some of these. To be born of and know God. To experience God's love and share it with others. To have a personal relationship and to enjoy fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To have a special relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to confess our sins and receive forgiveness and be released from guilt. To be released from the bitterness when others offend us by forgiving them. To read, know, and have confidence in his word as truth. To have victory over sin. To know that Christ will return and finally to have the security of knowing that you are saved you are one of his children and you will spend eternity with him. Why are we privileged to experience all that and more that John calls living through him? Well, it's because God sent his only son. 
That word only there in the Greek is monogenes. Mono one genus is a kind. And so what it really means, it's not sole or singular as our English seems to imply, but the son is a one of a kind son. And with that understanding, John 3.16 would be, for God so loved the world that he gave his one of a kind son. Now when you consider our state, this undeserved love is even more remarkable. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes this amazing exchange or transaction like this. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature of children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then consider verse 10. The Father's love for us is so great that he sent his Son not just to live and exemplify love, but to die. He came to die an excruciating death for humanity that was in rebellion against him. He took the punishment that all of us deserved, even for those who actually hate him. John starts with love consists in this. God loved us first before we loved him. He proved that by that he loved us by sending his son. And Paul says in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Why did he do that? Well, John and others use the word propitiation to answer it. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, propitiation is a word that means to turn away the wrath of God through a sacrifice. And in various religions, there's animal sacrifices. In other pagan religions, there's even human sacrifices. But this is different. Here, it's not some puny human sacrifice of an animal or even a mere human. It is God who provides the sacrifice. And it is Him. His Son. For us. Okay. You might say. But again. Why is a sacrifice necessary? Well. It's to settle or reconcile our account with Him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Some might ask, but why do we need to be reconciled to God? Well, thank you for asking. God is not only righteous, he is perfect righteousness. The problem is, we're not. And he, God, can receive nothing in his presence that is, not, that is less than perfectly clean and perfectly righteous. But he knows we all fall short of that standard. But God is also perfect justice. Now, we all love justice, don't we? 
except when it's required of us, right? A criminal must be brought to justice to determine what he must pay to satisfy his debt to society incurred by the offense or the crime that he's accused of in our system of justice. And in the same way, God's perfect justice both requires payment for our sins, but it also allows us as imperfect and sinful creatures to be reconciled to the perfectly righteous, perfectly just creator of the universe. Justice allows for payment of both crimes and sin. Our sin cannot be canceled, paid for, atoned for, or in any way made up by us, but only by propitiation, by a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath, the justice, the righteousness of our holy God. But what could possibly pay for the sins of the whole world, or even mine? Well, in the Old Testament, they looked for a spotless lamb to atone for their sins. And after Jesus was sent by the Father to us, he lived a perfect and guiltless life, yet was falsely accused, spat upon, mocked, beaten, scourged, spikes were, written, were, were driven through his hands and feet, and he was hoisted upon a cross to suffer for you and for me, for the sins of the whole world. He was a spotless lamb in human form. He is literally the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Our God is not only perfect righteousness, not only perfect justice, but he is perfect love. He loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Pastor Tim Keller puts it concisely. He says, the gospel is that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died in your place so God can receive you not for your record and sake, but for his record and sake. Now think about that. Is there any greater love than this? Well, let's move on to verse 11 and 12 here. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Uh, Christians, in general, have a PR problem, a public relations problem, right? Um, many in the world do not view us as we view ourselves. In fact, according to a recent poll, older, over 85% of young, unchurched people believe that Christians are judgmental or hypocritical or both. Have you ever heard the sarcastic statement, do as I say, not as I do? Well, that's usually directed toward to mock Christians, sometimes justifiably, implying hypocrisy. You know, you know, we talk about love on Sundays, but more importantly, do we demonstrate love for the rest of the week? And you might say, well, how unfair is that? How judgmental to call us judgmental? But let's step back and examine that. You know, there's lots of reasons for the impressions that are out there. Certainly the media and Hollywood and, and uh, even political leaders now are telling people 
that we're that way in many, many ways. And you throw in the mix of social media and hypersensitivity, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. However, could there be a kernel of truth? And maybe there's a whole bag of kernels that can be popped up into an extra large bucket from the heat of that fire. So if there's any truth to that charge, instead of whining and defending, wouldn't it be better if we considered the beam in our own eye? I know I've heard that somewhere. John just told us in the last chapter that we should not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. Jesus says in John 15 that the world hated him first and that he chose us out of the world, therefore the world hates us. But the thing that is so hard to understand here is that these people, the ones who hate us, are the ones that we are supposed to love. Yeah, John exhorted us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But remember, Jesus told us in Matthew 5 to love our enemies. Not only that, we are to pray for those who persecute us. And if we only salute those who love us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, he asked rhetorically, what reward is there for that in heaven? Now, we've talked before about what we call an a fortiori argument. Those are arguments that start with the greater case and which makes the, the lesser case uh, much easier. And here uh, in verse 11, Judge's argument is straightforward. First, the greater. If God so loved us, and he clearly did by sending his son to die for people who rebelled against him and hated him, then the lesser. We ought also, out of sheer thankfulness, and our connection with the source of that love. We ought to love one another. Uh, in John 17, we read this prayer in Sunday school this morning that uh, Brian led. It exposes the source of the love when it ends with the prayer with, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So the statement, we ought also to love one another, is John's exhortation to us to live each day as Christ, as children of God. We know him because we are born of him. We have his DNA because God's seed abides in us. And we have experienced his love. Loving one another is what Christians do. Now, verse 12 starts out a little surprisingly. No one has ever seen God. And then it goes on back to love. But the Greek here is more explicit. What it really says is that no one has ever been able to closely observe or examine God. You know, when Moses saw, saw God on Mount Sinai and when Isaiah saw God in the temple in, in, in uh, Isaiah 6, they only saw visions or revelations or what we call theophanies of God. If they had seen God in his unveiled presence, they would have been consumed. 
Therefore, what John is saying here is that people cannot see and behold God's majesty and his glorious essence. However, people can see the love of God when they see it lived out in our lives. And this mutual love shared by the children of God is evidence of the unseen God revealed in his son, and it's also revealed in his children. Again, John has a couple of points here to grasp. First, that we can and should love one another, which is proof that God abides or lives in us. Secondly, if we do love one another, God's kind of love is brought to complete maturity. It reaches its intended goal. As John puts it, it is perfected in us. I wrote down conclusion here, but this is before I saw this other stuff. So this is going to be a rather long conclusion. Um, of the, the things that you may have heard on Art Linkletter's show, one of my favorites is this. Love is what's with you in the room at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. You know, Christmas is a time to give and receive love. All kinds of wonderful traditions, even movies with classic lines like, yes, Jesus, when you hear a bell, an angel's earning his wings. Or, I triple dog dare you to lick that flagpole. <laughs> or, one of my favorites, Tiny Tim, God bless us everyone. And along with the colors and the carols and the trees and the lights, there's a spirit of unity, joy, thankfulness. You know, if we want to love at all times throughout the year, it's great to, to, to love at Christmas, but we need to think less about Christmas and more about Mas Christ, more Christ throughout the year. Of course, it's great to celebrate the birth of our Savior uh, always remembering that he loved us so much that he came into the world miraculously through a, a virgin and lived a perfect life and died a tortuous death to pay for our sins. John says we are to demonstrate love to one another. However, this is not Christmas season love. It's not Hallmark Channel love. It's not romantic or sexual or, or even brotherly love. We can experience all of those, and there's nothing wrong in the right context for the right motives. God loves us with perfect love. We will never love perfectly, but John says we're to love one another, so it's possible. You know, the closest thing I can think of to this is just familial love. You know, parents and children, children and parents, siblings, grandparents and all that, because those relationships require some sacrifice putting yourself before others. You know, uh, Jesus discusses his example of love in John 13. And there he washes the feet of his disciples. And he, he says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. 
you know. Then he tells everybody that someone in their midst is going to betray him. And then he gives this well-known commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But the very next thing that happens is that John tells him, I will stay devoted to you. I will never leave you. And Jesus says, oh, really? The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, if you didn't notice, the bar of love just got raised exponentially. At least for me, when I considered this. You see, Jesus showed his love and he died for Peter, who had just betrayed him. All the questions we've had up to this point are pretty basic. Here's where I think the hard questions start. Have you ever asked yourself, how could Peter do that? Before catching yourself in thinking, uh, yeah, I've done that. When I failed to speak up for Jesus. Could we possibly love like that? Can you love a trusted friend in whom you confide who then takes that confidence and uses it against you for his own benefit? Could you love a teenager who screams at you, I hate you, and then acts like it? Could you love a spouse with whom you shared a vow of love and honor until death? Who constantly argues or criticizes you? Or who is unfaithful? Even adultery? Could you? Is any of that worse than what Peter did in his betrayal? In John 15... We've got this rich and wonderful passage about the vineyard. You know, God is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. And he, he talks to us about how we can abide in him. And he says there in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another 
as I have loved you. And then it gets harder. Greater love has no man than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you keep my commandments. So my take on this, I don't know about you, but my take on this, what kind of love is that? What John and Jesus are talking about is a 24-7, 365-sacrificial, I would die for you even if you hurt me, hate me, or betray me kind of love. Can you imagine how strong our fellowship can be within our families and within the body of Christ if we practice that kind of love. This is what John means when he said that God abides in us and his love is perfected, matured, completed in us. This is also how the world and you and I will know that we are his disciples. As the worship team comes up, I got a little behind here. Uh, yeah, here we go. We're going to, I'd ask you to stand and uh, put a little more beat, meat on these bones here in my uh, attempt to explain all this. We're going to read a section out of 1 Corinthians 13 together uh, and just think about how we might apply this in our lives. Uh-oh. <laughs> we lost. Oh, it's back there. I'm sorry. Oh, there it is. Good. Together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Lord God, teach us what it means to truly love as you have loved us. In the precious name of your Son, amen.